Why don't we do what Moises exhorted us towards, which is pray. Ask God to show up. We believe that uh, here as a gathered people of God, if you're new to the things of Jesus, new to the Bible, new to Christianity, uh, we believe, as, as you just heard, that, that God must show up to help us understand his revelation, right? We believe God has given us revelation in creation, in his son Jesus Christ, and also in his written revelation, the Bible. So we love to preach it, love to listen to it, because this Bible is saying that it perfects us as we read it. So uh, let's take a moment. Um, I don't know how you enter this space today. Uh, it might be burdensome, might be anxiety-filled, might be uh, careless, might be uh, things particularly weighing on you, pressing on you. I don't know what your drive-in was like with your family. Uh, I always joke about how, you know, we always put on our best face and walk in the doors, but we could be stabbing each other on the way over. So uh, let's just try to remove the things that the enemy would love to put in our faces uh, so we can hear the Word of God clearly. So uh, take a moment with him, ask him for help. Ask him for illumination. Uh, the Holy Spirit of God is a member of our one God that exists in three persons, and he is the guider, the illuminator, the teacher. The scriptures say that when we become Christians, there's a resident truth teacher that takes up residency in us to do that. And if you're here, you're not a Christian, might you call out to God and say, God, reveal yourself to me. If you're real, if you exist, if truth is available, would you be kind to me this morning? If you're so burdened, you're gonna, you feel like you're going to have trouble listening, might you ask Jesus to carry those burdens because he longs to take those from you? He says his burden's very light, and his yoke is easy. Maybe you're wearing the wrong yoke this morning, and it's not him. God, thank you that we have you. Thank you that Christmas time in a season where we are bombarded with messages and things to satisfy us. God, thank you that we have you. Thank you that we're freed from anything else to be our master. God, would you help us this morning as we look at Advent, the arrival of Jesus. God, would you encourage us in the profound ways that you keep all of your promises in your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, go to Genesis chapter 3. If you're new, that means, great, you open up your Bible, you're just three chapters in, okay? So Genesis, first book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back that we'd love for you to have, take, keep. Um, here is what, what is happening. Um, we're going to take basically five weeks into Christmas Eve. We're going to teach uh, our first ever early Advent series where we're going to show promises made, promises kept. So uh, here's why God kind of led me to this space uh, for these five weeks before we hit James in the new year. Um, Advent really just simply means the arrival of, okay? So this is the season where we, we celebrate and remember. We look back towards, okay? So we look back at the coming of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus Christ and all that that means for us and why that's really good news. And then we anticipate the second arrival of Jesus Christ when he returns. But um, specifically what we want to look at is uh, we live in an over-eschatological uh, environment in our westernized, westernized culture. So Christmas, we know, right, that this, this time of year is when we think all of a sudden all the planets are going to align just right for us, right? So we'll all get all things right. The family will love us. All the disagreements will fade away, right? That kid will get just his, the right present. He'll, he'll say he loves you for like an hour, then bite you and yell at you remaining, you know, t time of the day. Like it's just where we, we long for things to be made right. Like we long for these expectations where everything will be at peace. Family will all get along. Uh, but the truth is, it's just this, this nonsense. And as soon as you put the tree away, as soon as the lights are taken down, you get back to normalcy which is really chaos, 
right, for most of us. And so um, what we want to look at is why is the coming of Jesus Christ such good news for us on Christmas morning, and why is that good news something that remains long after the tree is gone? Why is that good news that, that remains long after the lights are taken down? Why is this the only sure gift that you can have that's the realest thing, the most surest thing, the most satisfying thing that we can hold and taste and enjoy and become this Advent season. And so um, we're going to look at just basically promises made and promises kept. Now, uh, here's why we want to do this. Because one, it teaches you a really simple way to look at your Bible. If, if you're new to Christianity or you've never really heard this, basically you can just divide your Bible into Old Testament and New Testament. And the Old Testament are all the glorious promises made by God to his people Israel. And the New Testament are all God's beautiful promises that are kept and what they mean for us today. Um, and you got 2 Corinthians 1.20 that says all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at five promises as we land the plane on Christmas Eve as to what God has said in the Old Testament and how Jesus Christ keeps them in the New Testament. Um, and I'm encouraged at what God might do through us. So really what you have in the New Testament is just hope fulfilled. If you want to just simplify your Bible, you have hope promised and hope fulfilled because the people of Israel had longings. They longed for a deliverer. They longed for the world be, to be made right. They longed for lots of things to happen, restored fellowship with God, and God promised that that would happen and would happen primarily in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so uh, Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start there. Really one of the, the, the foundational promises that we have as Christians, okay? This is really, I think, the most beautiful promise that every other promise follows suit from, and you must know it in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to see how Jesus keeps this promise and what that means for us. So uh, Genesis chapter 3. Now, um, the story starts well before Genesis chapter 3. You have uh, one God that made all things. He made planets. He made solar systems. He made human beings. He made spiritual beings. He exists in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and he made spiritual beings, which exist in the spiritual world. Those are angels, right? Uh, and physical beings, which exist in the physical realm. That's, that's earth. Now, what happens happens is a third of the angels, right, uh, followed suit from their lead angel, which was Satan. Ezekiel and Isaiah will give you a window into this, and basically he wanted to be God, didn't want to be with God or under God, and so he, in his pride, just wants to usurp the throne of God. Bad idea. No one can do that. So he's cast out of the presence of God. A third of his angels follow him. Those are his demons. Those are the demonic warfare that we uh, find in our present age, what the Bible is explicit about, and what happens is there's a place called hell, which we talked about weeks ago in our identity series that he made first for uh, Satan and his angels and then all who would follow his ways and follow his lies and in their pride desire to be a glory thief just like him. And we see that God has this deliverer come in Genesis 3, but this cosmic war overflows into our day-to-day -day now. Okay, so uh, you're going to see uh, the enemy show up again, right, as God makes the first man and woman. They're in paradise. They're with God. There's perfect fellowship. It's unbridled. It is all that God intended to be. It was very good. And we'll see what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Here's what the writer of Genesis tells us. Now, the serpent, that's Satan, right, he's under the jurisdiction of Adam and Eve, right, he is uh, coming in the form of an animal, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? 
Okay, uh, Revelation tells us that the serpent is Satan, and we find out that he's crafty. So he doesn't come to us in real obvious ways. It's usually secretive. It's usually unexpected. It's usually in a sneaky way, right? I always say that, that when he comes at you, he's not going to come at you with a Satan t-shirt foaming at the mouth, right? He's, he's going to come at you and tempt you and lure you by the idols that already reside in you. And, and here he comes to the first man, the first woman, and out of the gate, he challenges the word of God. And notice what he says here. He says, as he comes, and he asks the first question in all of human history. And here's the first question. Did God actually say you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? Now, is that what God said? No. God actually said, hey, have had it. This garden's yours. There's only one that has limitation. See, some of us believe the same lie about God, but God is a one of massive freedom and narrow limitation. He invites us into a lot of joy, yet some of us are consumed with his limitations and restrictions, and you miss the freedom that he provides you. And this is the the, the lie from the beginning. He's he's challenging the word of God and the goodness of God. That's what he does. That's what our flesh does. God is one who gives incredible freedom and minor restriction. Look at what verse 2 says. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Um, Oldest trick in the book, God's a liar. He's lying to you. He wants to take from you. He does not want to give generously to you. He's not a good God. He's not a kind God. He's not a merciful God. He's not a loving God. He's a God that hoards for himself. He's not a God that desires you to be joyful. We've, we've been learning this over the weeks. He's actually after our joy, right, primarily in us enjoying him because he knows how that will be found. So here he just continues accusing God, going after the word of God. Listen, so many people get hung up on the fruit. It has nothing to do with the fruit. It has to do with the word of God, right? The root issue is they don't trust the goodness of God and the word of God. Now, some of us are buying the same lie back in the garden in Genesis 3, that, that God has these restrictions so he doesn't love me, he's not for me. And so you see all of these different lists. It says don't fornicate, don't get drunk, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lust. And, and really he's going, man, stop focusing on your limitations and look for what I'm offering. Those things are enslaving and not joy-sustaining. Yet we buy the same lie. That's right. He's just trying to keep from me. The other great temptation you see here is you'll be like God. Right? This is the, the cosmic sin of the universe. Being a glory thief, wanting his glory, want to be on his throne. I'm more capable, I know more, and he owes me nothing. And, and Satan says, hey, he doesn't want you to take this because then you'll be like him. Well, the truth is they're made in the image and likeness of God. It's a lie. They're in the likeness of God. They're in a perfect environment with God. This is the temptation some of us believe. Let me put it in Bergen County language for us. Uh, God hasn't provided for you, so go get it yourself, right? He hasn't provided a good sex life for you that's adequate, go get it for yourself. He hasn't provided a high that's good enough for you, go get it yourself. He hasn't provided a husband for you, go get it yourself. A wife for you, go get it yourself. He hasn't provided the right funds, go get it for yourself. Steal, embezzle. He hasn't, because I'm a better God than the one true God, I'm a God that knows better than the one true God, so I will decide what my life should be like and look like. And this is the fundamental sin of the universe, that we believe that we should be God and we're not God and we don't trust God and the word of God. And here it's great because we're going to see how Jesus satisfies all of this and 
helps us to understand that's a futile way of living. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took off, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Eve's going, maybe he's right. I am a pretty good God. I mean, I kind of know how these things work. I kind of know how I work. I kind of know how my DNA works. I kind of know what, what makes me happy. I kind of know what satisfies me. <laughs> yeah, I know what I should do. And she's just buying this lie, and she goes, maybe you're right. I don't want to be with God. I want to be God. And in an instant, in an instant, as the human heart desires in its evil, wicked temptations to be God and not be with God, what reverberates into the system, into earth, into fragments, into institutions, into the very DNA of who we are is sin and folly and destruction and fracture. That's what you have right out of the gate in Genesis chapter three. You have Adam and Eve believing the lie they'd make better gods than God despite his goodness. They prefer to be their own masters and right away you have folly and fracture and death entering the whole human race. So all of us are going to be products of this. All of us by birth, the psalmist will say it, New Testament will say it, Old Testament will say it, that we are born by nature and choice with a bent to choose outside of God's ideal. So we're going to want the world to be how we want it. We're not going to want it to be how God has it and believes is best for it. And as soon as they realize their sin, what happens? They separate. There's division. There's hostility. There's fracture. The moment they sin, the moment they decide in their hearts and in their minds that I don't want to submit to him, he's not good, he's not kind, he's not merciful, my way is best. You see fracture and chaos profound. There's division, right? They were naked without shame, now they're naked with shame. Now they realize their sin, and what happens? They hide. This is why no matter who you are, if there is secret sin that builds up in your soul privately or outward publicly, you desire to hide. Like the whole rest of human history is an issue of you getting fig leaves trying to cover up the insecurities inside you. Because I don't want people to see who I really am. If I let people see who I really am, then I won't be as secure, I won't be as satisfied, I won't be as stable, right? I mean, the rest of human history is what things are you trying to hide behind to prevent you from being who you really are. I don't want people to see me, whether it's your job, whether it's your resume, whether it's your house, whether it's your Fortune you know, 500 company, whether it is what you do, whether it is the career advancement, whether it is just people pleasing, whether it's whatever you hide behind, that's the fig leaves that you desire to be wrapped around you so no one will actually see that you're you. Now, I believe that church, that religion is probably the most damaging and dangerous one out there. Right, I'll just read a few Bible verses, show up to church, sing some songs, but I'll never reveal who I am because no one will have to ask me who the real me is. And you can come in this place and worship and sing and share, and yet no one will know what really resides in your human heart. No one will see the wickedness or the temptation or the danger or the dissatisfaction, and you love just covering yourself up and hiding. Here's, here's the good news. In our hiding... <laughs> God comes after you, right? As you try to sew your fig leaves on, 
He comes after you. Now, this is huge because some of you are going to have to do business with God and, and reframe your understanding of God because you thought that he loves to smite people. He loves to hand out justice. He loves to show vengeance. What you're going to see in the scriptures and in the first three chapters of Genesis is the God of the Bible is not a God who just comes out in vengeance against those who are disobedient but pursues you and intervenes as a way to show himself glorious and you made new. That's really good news for us. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God said to the man, or called the man and said to him, where are you? Isn't that beautiful? What grace. What mercy that, that in their hiding, in their shame, in their reality of nakedness, God does not go, great, I can slam the gavel, I'm great, I can send you to hell. He goes, hey, I'm coming after you, I'm calling to you. Profound mercy, profound grace. Instead of running to God in repentance, what does Adam do? He runs from God in hiding. Some of us are there. God's calling out to you in mercy He's calling out to you in his grace. He's calling out to you through the person work of his son, and you're running from him in hiding. Now, the truth is, some of us go, well, if God really understands all that I've done, if God really knows the, the, the inward workings of my heart, then, man, he, sh he should judge me. I mean, if he's really holy, really righteous, really infinite perfections, then he should absolutely justly send me to hell. And the truth is, he should. He should send all of us there. Me, I mean, every wicked thought and prevailing temptation that resides in my creed. But the good news is, you're going to keep seeing, he sees it, comes after you anyways in his goodness, and upholds his holiness and justice by making a way and a substitute for you. Love this beginning to the Bible. The gospel's preached within three chapters by God himself. And we see here that as Adam runs from God, God continues to pursue him. And the truth is, in our hiding, um, usually we try to do things. So we'll do more works or merits. We'll try to pray a little bit more. We'll try to read a little bit more scripture. We'll try to atone for sin in some way, right? I'll be nice to my neighbor for a day, right? I'll go mow his yard. I'll take care of it, right? Then God and I are good, right? I did some, did some penance. I did some, you know, peaceful work, right? I'll share my faith one time, right, this year. Okay, then God will be satisfied with me, right? We think he's after us just trying to begrudgingly do these things, and God's going, no, hold on. Um, you're the one who's lost, not me. You're the one hiding, not me. I mean, you got all the spiritually non-religious people going, oh, yeah, man, I'm, I'm kind of seeking after God. No, you're not. He's seeking after you. He's pursuing you. You're the one lost. God's been found from the beginning before you existed, man. God isn't hiding. You're the one who goes and hides. And God comes after you. And some of you, it bothers you because he's constantly at your heels. You're like, get off me, right? And he's like, no, because I know what's best for you. No, because I'm going to hunt you down with my ferocious love and tackle you in the work of Jesus Christ till you are fully absorbed in me and in my work for your joy and for my glory. That's what he's doing to some of you. I love it. We talk about it. He pesters you. That's because I'm praying he pesters you. Right? You're wondering about that. That's why. I pray every week, man, God, would you pester those who are running from you? Would you hunt them down? with your love? Would you continue to pursue them so they cannot ignore the voice of you? And then you write me that email. It's beautiful. 
And this is the beginning, right, in understanding the ministry of Jesus. I mean, just as God calls out for Adam, Jesus Christ calls out for us. And his work, this is just how you begin to understand the ministry of Jesus Christ. He just imitates the Father. Look at verse 10. And this is what God said. This is what Adam said. And I heard you, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. There's a good, healthy fear here in Adam. I realize my sin. I realize my nakedness. I realize my shame. And you're, you're God. You're holy. You're, you dwell in infinite perfections. <laughs> he said, who told you that you were naked? It's original sin. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? God knows they did it. He's asking to reveal things. The man said, the woman you gave to me. She gave the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord goes to the woman. What is it that you've done? The woman blame shifts. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Right, first time fear occurs in the Bible and it occurs because of unrepentant sin. Now this is huge because so many of us live in fear because you refuse to repent of your sin. Listen, we love to confess our sins. Some say, why do you love to confess your sin? Because God loves to forgive sin. So, so we, we long to, to confess our sin, but you live in unrepentant sin. That's where you do a word study on wrath and see passive act, passive wrath and active wrath. Man, you do not want the passive wrath, wrath of God where he just says, okay, keep going in unrepentance. Keep doing what you want. Let your heart hard until you go all the way to damnation, and then I never intervene. Man, I'd much rather the active wrath of God where he wakes me up like Nebuchadnezzar, animal, for a couple weeks, right, till I can understand he's after me. He is for me. He wants me. And here we see that right away he, fear occurs because there's unrepentant sin. And God asks Adam the question, were you obedient or disobedient? Did you do what I say or did you not do what I said? Did you believe I was for you or not for you? Did you trust the word of God or not trust the word of God? Did you trust the goodness of God or not trust the goodness of God? That's basically what he's saying here. And I love it. What does Adam do? In this moment, Adam should have repented. Yeah. You're right. You're right. I sinned. You're right. I want to be God. You're right. I don't believe you're good. You're right. I went after something that was more appealing to my eyes than you. What does he do? What we all do. Blame shift. It's my environment's fault. It's the trees. It's the air. It's, it's my work. It's my boss. It's my spouse. Right? So he goes, oh, it's my wife. That, that woman you gave me, made her from me, then asked me to marry her. Yeah, she deal with her. She's a, she's a mess, Right? And then she, he goes over to Eve, well, why, why'd you eat? Oh, that serpent, oh, that, that one over there, oh, the devil, devil maybe. The devil doesn't make you do anything. He tempts you to what you want to do. And then you jump on it, right? That's what happens in temptation. That's what happens when the enemy has a foothold in our life. It's amazing you see this progression that we all do. We all excuse, justify, and blame anyone but us. It couldn't possibly be me, Right? It couldn't possibly be me, the one that has the indwelling sin, the, the crooked nature that can't make it right. We learned this in Ecclesiastes, right? We need something outside of us to make straight that which is crooked. And so many of us, as soon as God awakens us to the weakness in us, the lack of discontentment, the loneliness and frustration that are benchmarks in our spiritual life when we refuse to pursue Jesus and all the stuff that he's made and not the creator and just enjoy the creation, what happens is you begin this crazy cul-de-sac mantra of a circus where you keep chasing what doesn't satisfy you, believing someday it might. And we just keep going after it and keep going after it. And God the whole time's going, 
Where are you? Do you believe I'm good? Do you believe in my word? Do you believe that I'm trustworthy? Do you believe that I've made the world to operate a certain way? Do you believe you can trust me? Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, now he moves on to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Guys, I don't know if you've noticed this. This is profound mercy. He curses the serpent and not man and woman. Like he's going to keep coming after Adam and Eve, but he lets the serpent go. He doesn't offer redemption. He, he doesn't offer new life. He doesn't offer hope outside of eternal torment. He says, this is what you are going to get. You will be cursed. There's no opportunity for you. Satan and his demons are destined for destruction and separation from God. But for man and woman, you and me, there is hope. We have hope. We're not cursed like him. Now, there are curses that become us, right, in the fall with work and labor and childbearing and all the, thing that, the things that God will give, the imperfections of this life, the residual effects of the fall that we all walk in. But for the enemy and his adversaries, there's no hope. What mercy. Centers the world and fractures it, and God shows up. Man and woman hide themselves, and God begins to pronounce judgment first on the serpent, the devil, who's the embodiment of evil. But then we have one of the most important promises in all of scriptures. If you don't have this circled in your Bible, circle it, highlight it, star it. Look at verse 15. Most of you know it. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's the enemy and woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise. Some of your translations say crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. I love it. Here is now the first clear gospel given, and it's by God himself saying, what you screwed up, I'm going to take care of. I'm going to continue to pursue you by sending a deliverer, someone who will restore, someone who will mend the fracture that's between you and the woman, you and the man, right? There is now hostility. There is now chaos. There is now damage. There is now sin. This is all a result of our idolatry wanting to be God and not wanting to be with God. You see this right here in the text. Theologians call this the, the proto-evangelical, the, the pre-gospel. This is what God is given as the mandate for how he will restore humanity. Because there's one, he says, that will come and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Now, what's amazing, there's no real, like, details in this, like, imputation's not fleshed out, justification, atonement, but the gospel's there. Substitution is there. God making a way for sinful man is there. It's beautiful. And it gives you this visual of if, an, if a serpent, a snake, were to come into a huge room of people and would want to attack, right? If anyone saw it, the first thing you'd want to do is crush its head, which is right by your heel, so it may have time to bite you, which would cause you to die, yet you would still crush the head of the serpent. We see this in Jesus Christ. He crushed the head of Satan, and he still did die, but he rose. So yes, Satan will bruise his heel. Yes, Satan will have what seems like half a win, but he doesn't get anything because it's all part of the plan of God where, yes, the serpent will bruise your heel. He will take a bite. 
And people will think you are dead and you will rise back to life, showing that you fully crushed the head of Satan. And Colossians 2 says he then makes, makes an open spectacle of them. He just embarrasses them and strips them naked. Yeah, crushed your head, I'm not dead, nice nibble, I'm fine, I'm alive, and all that you think you have, all the power you think you have is nowhere greater than me. And he triumphs over them, it says in Colossians chapter 2, opening them up to public shame. What good news. You see this promise already fulfilled. And this is why, guys, some of you are going to have to reframe your mind as to what you think God is like. Because here we see in the beginnings of Scripture from the first sin, God in the midst of man's rebellion going, I'm coming after you. I'm coming for you. I'm sending a deliverer. The, the plan is in motion. It was already planned before time, before the foundation of the world. And here we go. It's inaugurated, and it's going to be fulfilled in my son. Now listen, um, here's the thing. As anytime we talk about just this, this solution of God, I mean, there is so much hypocrisy everywhere, right? I mean, in, in the Christian circles, and it's silly, right? But uh, no place is going to be free from that. But it's just as goofy in the world, guys. Okay, so you have people, you got a non-spiritual spiritualist, Oprah, right? She, she gets up and she says, hey, to millions of people, this is how you're fixed. This is what to read. This is what to eat. This is what to meditate on. And people go nuts, Oh, that, oh, she knows me. She knows everything about me. How did she know that? And we just celebrate her. And then she's got a sidekick, Dr. Phil, who says the same thing. Hey, you're morons. Yeah, we're all morons. I can't believe it. How does he know that? Right? We, we celebrate it. But someone gets on the word of God, stands up and says, this is what went wrong. This is how you fix it. And people lose their minds. I mean, how in the world could you tell me what, how you know what's wrong with me? How in the world could you tell me that this Jesus Christ fixes you? Which is why we got to beg God to protect us from the spiritual blindness. If that's not a telltale sign, I don't know what is, that we would not rejoice in things that have no track record and rejoice in the one that shows the proven track record of how he fixes what goes wrong, who reaches in the deeper parts of our being, the deepest aspects and avenues, and doesn't just make you nice, doesn't just modify who you are, but literally the scriptures say makes you totally, completely new. So that sin can be eradicated and put to death and all that assaults you can be banished. Amazing. And that's why, guys, it only takes three chapters for Scripture to make clear something has gone terribly wrong. Inside you, inside me, inside the world that we have uh, tried to usurp the throne of God. And that sin, that desire to be him and not with him has trickled and overflown into all the businesses we lead, the people that we love, the governments that we run the world that we live in. It's fractured. What's amazing is God, in the midst of our rebellion, wanting to steal his glory, believing we're smarter, more capable, responds not with destruction. <laughs> I mean, if you want to see evidence of the character of God, you see out of the gate him not respond with destruction, but a way to intervene on behalf of us for his glory. And here's the promise kept in Jesus Christ on Christmas morning. Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is Adam part two. He picks up where Adam left off. Look at what the book of Romans tells us about this. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, this is a beautiful text, coming out of Genesis 3.15, helping us understand that all the things are shadows pointing to the substance which is Christ, Colossians 2.17. 
Here you have, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam. In other words, there are different ways we sin, different types of sin. It all points to idolatry. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, that abounds for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ." Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for everybody, original sin, Adam's sin, Eve's sin, we all inherit that by nature and choice. It's who you are from birth. You don't believe me. Have a kid. Raise them. Watch them bite you. Want to steal. Want to whine. Want to complain. Be selfish from the moment they're out of the womb. It's who we are. And he says, just as that happens, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. That's Jesus. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, we were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. That's Jesus. Let me save you the time. Here's what the scriptures just said In Adam, you're dead, in Christ, you're alive. That's what he just said. Jesus is Adam, part two. Where Adam failed miserably, Christ fully, permanently, gloriously wins. I mean, everything points to Jesus. Everything gathers around him and his glory. Everything you see in the scriptures is going to show you and tell you and be a signpost towards the weight of glory of Jesus Christ. And here we see the book of Romans, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, reminds us our human problem is sin from our father Adam. So we choose death over life, folly over wisdom, wanting to be God, not with God. We all desire that. We all want to choose that. And God in his great love came for us just like he did for Adam in the person of Jesus Christ. And he calls out to us and says, you can find reconciliation, you can find forgiveness, you can find covering for your shame. You don't have to hide. You can come out in the light. You can actually run into the light because forgiveness can be had for you. Do you believe that? Or are you functionally existing like forgiveness is not for you because God loves some future version of you. When he saved you, he was waiting for you to start acting right, performing right, becoming something new. And then he follows up on the tail end and says, okay, I'll finish this thing off like the, like the, the, the 500, right, with, with the race cars, right? He'll just get a new driver, get somebody else in the pilot, and I'll do the last lap for you. That is not the God of the universe. The God of the universe starts it before you were born, inaugurates it in your existence, and finishes it in future glory. You have no boasting. You have no rights. You get all glory given to Jesus Christ who says, I win this whole thing for you. Now, that's great news to the sinner who knows they can't do anything, who knows even this secret cycle they're in, they cannot break no matter how many times they try to do it by the works of their own flesh. It pops back up like weeds. You kill it for two weeks, and it's back. You get out your lawnmower and do it again. You need something outside of you, and the Bible promises 
You can't lift any curse. You can't remove it. You can't win over the power of Satan. There's nothing in you. I don't care if you do UFC. I don't care if you do CrossFit. I don't care if yesterday your gym routine was killing it. You can't overthrow anything spiritual. You need someone outside of you, and the Bible says, I'm going to promise you can, that it's not because you're great. It's because Jesus is awesome, and he's the only one who can take the curse of sin and lift it. Now, here's why this is terrifying for us. Because so many of us live in this cycle, and this terrifies me, where you'll never suffer as much as Job, and you'll never be as wealthy as Solomon. You know where that puts you? On your treadmill, where you're always looking for what's next, and angst never goes away, and satisfaction's never healed, and the curse is never lifted, because you've somehow bought the lie that if you live in this in-between, that you're somehow okay, and you strive for extremes that probably will never be you, and until Jesus Christ resolves your appetite, until you trust in the one who lifts the curse and demolishes the satanic strongholds, you're following the course of the air just like everybody else, and he has blinded you, believing that you're okay, and just to continue to look for what's next. And around Christmas time, you're looking for that next thing. If you can get that toy or that trinket or that hobby or that promotion or that raise. Or if the whole world could be calm in the house, then existence is the way it's meant to be. It was never meant to be that. It was meant to be better. And only Jesus Christ can do that. And then we live in an already not yet where he brings us into the fold of God, longing for the future fold of God where all will fully be made right, full darkness will be pushed back, yet in his coming Christmas morning, this is such good news for us, that we get to open up Jesus every day, that he keeps this promise thousands of years ago, that he'd lift the curse, that he'd do away with the satanic strongholds, that the very thing you could not change and could not correct, the sin that indwells you, he would do it on his own. He would do for you, with no help from you, even when you weren't asking for it. You weren't going, hey, I kind of want you now. No, he said, from the moment you came into existence, I'm after you. Some of you are here this morning because that's his demonstration of his pursuit. You're sitting in this room hearing some weird guy with a red, white beard give a sermon, right? Don't normally have this coming off this week. Don't worry, November's gonna be over. You'll recognize me again, but you're hearing this sermon and you're going, what's he talking about? That's God appealing to you through his word. It's God speaking to you through his word. And here is the beautiful thing. Jesus is the better Adam. And you're going to see it throughout scripture. What happens to Adam? He's kicked out of the garden. He's sent into the wilderness. Where does Jesus' ministry pick up? Man, he's, he's led into the wilderness. And who comes to him to tempt him? The serpent. And he tempts him not with fruit, but he tempts him with food. He tempts him with bread. He tempts him with idolatry to not submit to the Father's will. He tempts him in every way. You'll see him later in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is in a garden. Adam's in a garden. Adam's tempted. Adam gives way. Jesus doesn't. Jesus, every time, doesn't receive the twisted, perverted words of God. 
from the serpent, he believes and speaks the truth of God and is found free. You see in Hebrews 4, his whole ministry will tell you the serpent continues to come to Jesus Christ and tempt him. He's tempted in every way the scriptures say. He's tempted to commit sexual sin. He's tempted to overindulge in alcohol. He's tempted to lie, cheat, steal. He's tempted to please people. He's tempted to use people as pawns to elevate himself and not be submitted to the Father. He's tempted for fame. He's tempted by prestige. But he perfectly, here's what's extraordinary about Jesus. He does not give in to any bit of those temptations and he lives the perfectly obedient life where Adam failed miserably, Jesus Christ succeeds, and he goes to the cross, despising its shame, and he takes your sin upon himself as your substitute in your place, and he gifts you his righteous life so that you can be made as Adam was in the garden before he sinned, in restored fellowship with God, and one day in the kingdom of God for all eternity. This is really, really good news. And that's why we celebrate this, that we have no power to do this. The Bible teaches in Galatians that that he actually became the curse for you and me. Um, This means he didn't just suffer the curse of sinful choices. He actually became the death blow of the curse for you so that you would not have to bear it yourself. What great news. The question for us this morning is the same question I think God asked Adam, and he's asking you, where are you? Are you hiding? Christian, non-Christian, are you hiding? Where does God want to draw you out in the light to remind you of his promise kept in Jesus that, listen, you don't have to be like Adam. You don't have to wander in hiding. You don't have to be under the covering. You don't have to feel like you cannot admit or confess your sin. Because God longs to forgive our sin, and he inaugurated that from the beginning and sent a deliverer to lift the curse for you and be the curse in your place, in your stead for your sin. He's calling you by name, some of you. He's inviting you to repentance. Now, we got two options. We can run from him in further hiding, or we can turn in in forgiveness, right? You can find forgiveness or find unforgiveness in misery. You can find life or find death wisdom or folly. You can find the light or stay in darkness. But God says to all people through the work of his son, where are you? Where are you this morning? What's the crippling sin in your life? What are the things you're hiding behind? What are the things that haunt you? Jesus Christ has the full authority to lift that curse. He has the full authority to dismantle the war of Satan. Because Romans 5 says we're either first dead in Adam or we're second alive in Jesus Christ. He's available. Let's ask for help this morning. God, would you give those of us a moment to consider you, to consider your work, to consider that you are a perfect promise keeper, that, God, you are the greater Adam, the better Adam, the perfect Adam. God, thank you that we get to see shadows of you throughout the scriptures that point to your advent, point to your coming. God, would Christmas morning be sweet to us because all of the discontentment, all the loneliness and frustration that we find in chasing other things outside of you has been met in a gift that remains long after the tree and lights and family leave. God, would you center our hearts there this season? 
Would you help us to see more of you amidst our over-westernized eschatology? Would you help us to drill deep into the gift that is Jesus Christ, the advent of your Son, the one who was promised, who crushed the head of Satan while he bruised your heel, the one who became the curse for us so that we would not be cursed, the one who offers new life, offers forgiveness, offers reconciliation. Would you work now? God, would you illuminate right now in people's hearts the reality of you and your son? Would you save some right now? Would you cause some not to run in hiding but to turn in repentance? Would they see they don't need to keep hiding? That, God, self-pity is just as cross-mocking as self-righteousness. That us thinking we're too good for the cross is just as blasphemous as thinking we're too bad for it. That, God, the cross bridges the middle ground and covers all people of all types, of all races, of all sins. God, might some be saved this morning. You can repent of your sin. That's just a theological word for turning from sin and turning towards Christ. Turn from the sin that enslaves you and see Jesus as your substitute, as your forgiver. He says his righteousness can be given to you and he will take your sin and pay it in full. That he will do what Adam could not, your great, 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 great grandfather. And Father, those of us who have been made new through the shed blood and personal work of your son, Jesus Christ, would you continue to call us out of hiding? Would you continue to protect us from the the residual effects of the fall that still remain in us that desire to turn from you and wander and choose other things? Would you keep us in your grip as you promise? We're thankful that who you save, you will not let go of, that who you seal, you will not open up to the world. Continue to preserve us by your word and through the saints and through your spirit. Help us to enjoy you as we observe your supper. In Jesus' name, amen.